Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, uh, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. This morning, I want to ask a question of the kids who are here this morning, um, and also of those of you adults who may remember being a kid. So, kids and adults, do you want a dog? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great to have a dog? who could play with you and sleep on your bed and do all the things that you imagine a dog would do, wouldn't that be just wonderful? And adults who remember this stage, do you remember what it was like to want a dog? The anticipation, the excitement. And do you remember when you actually got a dog? Or do you remember, rather, when you got a puppy? And do you remember when that puppy, whose name was Jet, who was a Cocker Spaniel Black Lab mix, found your parents' hand-carved nativity set from Jerusalem on the very first Christmas that the puppy came to your house, and he plucked baby Jesus right out of the manger, chewed him to pieces, and swallowed him whole? Oh, that wasn't any of you. That was only me. Okay, well, I bet that many of you who remember the anticipation of getting a dog and you compare it to the reality of when you got that dog, it didn't go quite exactly how you hoped. Or maybe another example that may hit close to home. Those of you who are married, do you remember before you were married the expectation and anticipation to just be done dating? All of the relational difficulties that you had would go away. It would be simple. (laughs) Amen. Uh, There would be no more trouble or difficulty. Isn't it amazing how life, our expectations, don't always match the reality that we experience? And how often those realities bring us closer to the Lord. Today we're going to be reading Isaiah 21. Uh, and this marks the start of a second cycle of three prophecies regarding the execution of God's judgment on the nations. And this is a very different style used in the first cycle in chapters 13 through 20 than is used in this cycle that we're going to begin today. In chapters 13 through 20, there was very specific, even graphic detail about God's judgment. And now we enter a part of the book that doesn't have as much detail, but has very emotionally charged poetry. And today, I want you to try to give yourself over to the feelings that are evoked by this text. This isn't just a repetition of the same facts that we've heard in the previous chapters, but it's a powerful emotional connection that Isaiah and the author are trying to show us. And my friends, it is terrifying. So today we'll look at four major themes which are listed in your outline. The first is that God's judgment is unstoppable and the aftermath is terrifying. And in the aftermath of that judgment, God's people must listen and watch. Also, in the aftermath of God's judgment, there is silence. And lastly, in the aftermath of God's judgment, 
earthly relief is temporary. So read with me today Isaiah 21, 1 through 4, and we'll see how God's judgment is unstoppable and the aftermath is terrifying. The Oracle Concerning the Wilderness of the Sea As the whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. And the language that Isaiah uses here is so evocative. And the first feeling that we get is one of inevitability. In verses 1 and 2, Isaiah reiterates the promised judgment on Babylon by using the image of a whirlwind or a sandstorm coming up from the southern desert. And the Negev, now pronounced Negev, is a real place in the southern part of Israel. And here's a modern picture of a sandstorm just like the one Isaiah is referring to. As the whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, so the judgment of the Lord is unstoppable, implacable, inevitable. What force on earth, either in the time of Judah or today, could ever stop that? Not even the greatest nation on earth at the time, Babylon, can oppose the word of the Lord. The judgment we will read about today includes both the high and the low in Arabia, and it also includes very specifically Babylon, which we will see in verse 9. And this promised destruction on Babylon isn't new to the book. It was already prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 13, and it was the outcome that the people of Judah were counting on. It was that what they were hoping for, to bring relief for their oppression. And even God's use of Elam and Medea that we just read about, the two kingdoms that were to the east of Babylon, was prophesied of in Isaiah 13 in the previous chapter. Let's look at verses 17 and 19 of Isaiah 13. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of of kingdoms and the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So we've already seen the judgment of God prophesied in chapter 13. We've already seen his use of the Medes um, and Elam. So what is new in chapter 21? Well, there's something very unique here. And it connects 
in chapter or in verses three and four. Let's read those again. Verses three and four from chapter 21. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. So this expected judgment of God on Babylon does not bring Isaiah to rejoice. He doesn't rejoice at the destruction of Judah's enemy. The storm of God's judgment crashes through and Isaiah feels it with them. And this is a direct mirror of what we've already seen in chapter 13. Verses 6 and 9 say this. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. A destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So the same response prophesied on Babylon and on the sinners is what Isaiah feels himself in chapter 21. He's not apart from this judgment. He knows that he is numbered just as much among the sinners as Babylon. And my friends, he is afraid. The end of chapter 21, verse 4, says, The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. The nation of Judah was tired, tired of God's judgment, tired of the oppression of Babylon. God, please, just give us a break. Bring your judgment on the wicked. And when God does it, his people see that God is not a God who can be kept in a box. He is a mighty, mighty storm. He is not a safe God. And he is this awesome, implacable storm bent on scouring evil from the land. And my friends, he starts with the hearts of his own people. So church, how do we apply this? Church, be afraid. Be terrified. Be terrified for those who do not know Christ. And feel with them the urgency of their need. And be terrified by the magnitude of the consequences of your own sin. The judgment of God is not something that we simply wish on our enemies because we are our own worst enemies. Our sin is the biggest problem. It's not our corrupt boss. It's not our disobedient children. It's not a godless nation. And my friends, have you ever prayed for God to just deliver you from your enemies? And if a little fire and brimstone comes, that's fine too. Well, that day is coming, and nothing can hold it back. 
And the only hope is that God literally help us when it does. The only reason that we survive that encounter is because of Jesus Christ. He stepped in front of that storm and he took it all. Every wind, every stinging grain of sand, every boulder, he took it on himself so that we don't have to. So let that change how you talk with people who do not yet know the Lord. We aren't better than them. We're the same as them. But we know the one who is better than all of us. And let the terror of facing that storm alone without Jesus motivate you to tell everyone. That's our job. And that's what understanding these verses So we've seen in these verses how God's judgment, just like a storm, is unstoppable and that the aftermath is terrifying. So what do we do about this? If God's judgment is so unstoppable and inevitable, what can be our response? What can we mortals do in the face of such power? And in the next verses, Isaiah gives us two possibilities of how we can react. First, we can do like most of the world does and carry on as if nothing has happened. Or second, we can listen to God's word and we can be vigilant. Let's read Isaiah 21, 5 through 10 and see how in the aftermath of God's judgment, his people must listen and they must watch. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post, I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered on the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The first thing we get in these chapter, chapter in these verses is a glimpse in verse five of people who are preparing a normal meal. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. They go about their normal routine. How can people go about their normal routine when faced with the judgment that we just heard about? God's word has been spoken. The judgment has been pronounced. And it will be completed. And yet, life goes on unchanged until the judgment is realized. It may seem unbelievable, but look around. The vast majority of people will follow this course, acting like everything is normal, even when faced with God's judgment. And imagine how difficult it would be 
for the people of Judah to trust the word of Isaiah when all of their neighbors continue on as if nothing is happening. It's not easy to trust the word of the Lord against the cultural norm. And so God gives us a second picture of an alternative of what he is calling his people to do. In verse 6, he says, go, set a watchman and let him announce what he sees. God calls for his people to be wise and to watch. And not simply to watch, but according to verse 8, the watchman says, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post I am stationed whole nights. This is not a small commitment. This is not a brief shift after which we can go back to preparing a table and eating and drinking. This is a long, 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 long time that we have to endure and be faithful. This is a lifestyle. And it shows a heart-level trust of the Lord. You don't maintain vigilance if you don't recognize the existence of danger. And so heeding God's warning requires faith. Verse 7 says, let him listen diligently, very diligently. And so God answers this faithful diligence with his good news. In verse 9, he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered on the ground. Praise the Lord. So let's apply. Listen and watch. Stand watch day and night and do it even when no one else does. Don't participate in the gossip in your workplace. Even when it seems harmless or just a way to fit in. Teenagers, don't complain about your parents to your friends. But respect them even when they can't hear you. Spouses, invest in the biblical ideal of marriage, not the worldly expectation of love and self-gratification. Likewise, singles, pursue godly relationships of all kinds and resist the lie that an earthly relationship is all-important. Listen diligently to what God's word warns you about your heart. Don't follow it blindly to your own self-gratification. And friends, we must do these things over and over and over, continually by day and whole nights. So we've seen that God's people are called to the difficult task of listening and remaining vigilant and announcing what they see, even when they do so for a long time, and even when they do so alone. Now let's look at one other terrifying aspect of the aftermath of God's judgment. And this can be even the most terrifying. Silence. Let's read Isaiah 21, 11, and 12. The oracle consuming concerning Dumas. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, 
What time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. It's clear, right? (laughs) This pair of verses has been exhaustively studied and debated by biblical scholars. And there are several interpretations, but the one that seems to fit the rest of the structure of the passage the best is that the word Duma has two connotations. It's both the Hebrew word that means silence, and it also refers to an actual city, Duma al-Jundal, which was the capital of an Arab confederation known as Kedar, which we will hear about more in verse 16. But regardless of the scholarly debate, there are some things that help us as we consider this passage. We can consider the tone and the emotion of this poem. And we can contrast this watchman and his responses with that of the watchman in verses 6 through 9. The overwhelming sense of this interaction is just one of weariness on the part of both parties, the questioner and the watchman. And this question that we read in verse 11, what time of night? It's a lot like the question, are we there yet? From the back of the seat that we hear on the cross-country road trip. It's clear to everyone in the car that, no, we're not there yet. But it's a frustratingly common question. And whether this question is asked mockingly by Edomites, which is one of the interpretations, or whether it's asked sincerely by the people of Judah in the south, which is another of the interpretations, either way, the watchman's answer that he gives to this question is very telling. Look at verse 12. Morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. Basically, we'll be there when we get there. God is not obliged to answer this question about his timing. Unlike the watchman in verses 6 through 9, who cries out both to God and to those who are waiting for his word, this watchman goes on morning and night, and there is no news. God is silent. This watchman has nothing to report, but come back again. How does this apply to our own perspective on God and his judgment? My friends, silence can be just as terrible as wrath. When we or others call to God and inquire as to the timing of his plan, what time of night? What time of night? there may be no answer. As often as we clearly see the moving of God, just as often there is silence. We may be at our post with no news, but my friends, that does not mean that God's plan is failing. He is working and his will is being 
accomplished, whether or not we have proof. So when you pray for years that your friends and your family would come to know the Lord, but their hearts remain hard, don't despair. God doesn't move only in the storm, but he also moves in silence. And we need to fight the temptation to doubt and to give up our post in those times. So we see that in the aftermath of God's judgment, silence can be just as terrible as wrath. So let's move on to the conclusion of this chapter and hear the final oracle that God pronounces on the nations east of Judah. Let's read Isaiah 21, 13 through 17, and learn how the aftermath of God's judgment, earthly relief, is temporary. The Oracle Concerning Arabia In the thickets of Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitives with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers, of the mighty men, of the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now there are a lot of proper nouns in this section. uh, And I found it helpful to take a look at a simple map of the region and to get a feel for what's going on here. So here's a very general map of the area. And you'll notice first Babylon and the two kingdoms, Medea and Elam, that are to the east, which God calls up to conquer Babylon. We also see Judah and Mount Seir to the south. And right in the middle of these two are the Arabian kingdoms from these verses. In these verses, we get a picture of the refugees who are fleeing down into Arabia from the conquest of Babylon. Verses 15, or verse 15 says, For they have fled from the sword and from the press of battle. And these refugees are seeking relief from Dedan and from Tima. Now, Dedan and Tima were two minor nomadic tribes that were along the trade routes connecting Assyria to Babylon. You can think of these tribes like poor traveling salesmen who operate from a van down by the river. These tribes are almost insignificant. And these are the people who the greatest nation on earth, who oppressed all of the people around them, causing great sighing, now depend on for their water and for their bread. What a far cry we've come from verse 5, where the people of Babylon prepared a table and spread the rugs and ate and drank. Now the people are refugees and fugitives. They rely on the charity of the lowliest people for just the slightest bit of relief. We're going to jump back again to chapter 13 one time 
and look at this judgment again that was prophesied on Babylon. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. What a contrast this is that we see the fate of Babylon from chapter 13, the complete and utter reversal that God has brought about. The rich and the glorious land of Babylon has been made so desolate that even the poor nomadic tribes don't want it. And the refugees from Babylon are dependent on those same nomadic tribes for their very life. And my friends, God isn't even done there. Wouldn't that be enough for us that we reverse the power of the lowly and the high? Let's look back again at chapter 21, verse 16. Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And Kedar was the name of a relatively strong confederation of Arab tribes. And that included the small nomadic tribes of Dedan and Tema. Tema, sorry. So even those that the mighty depend on for relief, they will be brought down. And Kedar had strong ties to Babylon and their capital city of Dumas. The capital city of Kedar was Dumas, which we heard about, which is the major hub that the trade in the region flowed through. So it would seem natural that in the aftermath of the fall of Babylon, maybe this group might rise up and take power. But God had other ideas. Verse 17 promises, God says that the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Even the relief of water and bread promised by this lowly people won't last. Even their glory will fade within one year. My friends, only God is able of providing lasting relief. He will ultimately do this according to Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. We mustn't forget that this is God's ultimate goal. The famine, the death, the tears that we see throughout Isaiah will end with feast and with eternal life. The goal of God's judgment on his people 
and on the nations is so that he can swallow up death forever and to wipe away the tears of all the people, not just those of Judah. 1 Corinthians 55 and 56 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the application? There is only one lasting source of relief, Jesus Christ. Just like Peter talked about last week, we can't rely on anything but Yahweh, God of armies, for support. Not the military might of Egypt, not the water or the bread from Arabia. We can't look to satisfying our hearts for relief. We can't look to our success or our accomplishments for relief. We can't even look to our good deeds or our service in this very church for relief. The only thing that gives lasting relief is the salvation given by Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the one that satisfied the need of a holy God and spares us from the storm of God's wrath. So, in conclusion, we have seen in this second cycle of prophecy about the judgment of the Lord on the nations, that God's judgment is unstoppable like a storm. And the aftermath is terrifying. In that aftermath, we must listen and remain vigilant, even when those around us do not. And we must even listen faithfully when God himself may be silent. We must resist the temptation in both silence and suffering to turn to anyone other than God for relief. Only Jesus Christ and his work on the cross can make us right with the Holy God and bring us into his presence so that he can wipe away every one of our tears, and restore us through Jesus to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord. We thank you for everything that you have done for us from the beginning of time through this very moment. Lord God, we know that you have been at work in every way, whether we see it or whether we don't. Whether it's announced from the watchtowers or whether we don't get that revelation until you wipe away our tears. And Lord, we thank you that you defeat death, not just for us, but for all the people of the world. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, Lord. Not just for those in State College, but for those in Japan, and for those in India. And Lord God, we thank you that you save us from our sins. Help us this week as we go out to be terrified because of those things we've read today. Amen.